How does someone based in the U.S. get a job at Netflix? Right. So I, I'm not going to give like a blanket job search sort of a response to that question. There is a job site. I would never discourage anybody from applying to a job at Netflix, but it's not how I landed my job. So I'll speak specifically to that and what I think is the sort of the bigger advice. back from a break that we took on the podcast for a few months at the end of 2021 we had to take some time to recover from the year it was it was a pretty hectic year and we wanted to strategize for 2022 as well but we are starting off this season of the podcast with a bang because today i am so excited to be joined by aaron mitchell who is the director of hr for netflix animation studio which is the division of netflix that produces and develops animated programs and feature films amazing that i'm able to get this amazing guy from netflix on the podcast i'm so excited i met aaron where else you guessed it at harvard business school you guys must be tired of me saying that now aaron was in the year below me so he graduated in 2011 and i graduated in 2010 since then he's had an impressive journey taking him from boston to new york to singapore and now to los angeles with netflix Aaron, welcome to the Soul Career Podcast. Thank you so much, Lissandra. So happy to be here. So happy to spend my, my next hour with you and, and talk about all the stuff. So thanks for having me. Thank you for saying yes. I reached out to Aaron on, on LinkedIn because he was doing all this amazing, st amazing stuff and he said yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Aaron. Okay, let's start at Netflix, of course, where else? Tell us about your role as director of HR for Netflix Animation Studio. What exactly is it that you do? So I do not make cartoons, contrary to what my daughters believe, because they know <laughs> I work in animation. I have a four-year-old and eight-year-old. So I lead HR for what is the fastest growing animation studio in the world right now. Um, and our objective at Netflix Animation is to entertain everyone. Um, and I look at my job as an important part of transforming this industry. We operate in 35 countries. We've got about, you know, just over 2,000 people. And my job is to help to prepare the practices, the policies, but more importantly, to help people live in the culture that's gonna produce this amazing content from different storytellers, many of which we've never heard from, from all around the world and all different languages and all different styles. And that's my job is essentially just to help lay the foundation for how all that work gets done. Wow, so give us a little bit of the specifics, like how do you create a culture for all these amazing people? Just quick high level approach. You know, I say, first of all, it's, it starts with understanding the people, right? Like I, I like to talk about culture in terms of things that we're familiar with, cultures of countries. And a lot of people think, you know, corporate America or corporate environments are sort of monolithic and animation is this completely different other environment with artists and producers and a lot of folks who are not operating in that typical corporate and 
corporate environment. So my job is essentially to localize a lot of the Netflix culture, right? It's, it's making things make sense for a community of very creative people whose lives exist in worlds that we can't imagine, but their job is to make those worlds real. And my job from a culture perspective is to help them understand how to operate within a corporate environment, how to bring their best selves to work, how to understand enough about, you know, how to get paid in a payroll system to get it done so that they can focus the rest of their energy on the creative output that they came to Netflix to, to participate in. So I know that's not super duper specific, um, but that in, in the ish of it, which we like to say sometimes in, in, in the industry, you know, it's, it's really the, the, the nuts and bolts, the yeah. pay systems, the, uh, the policies, the severance, the, uh, how much we pay people and figuring out within the context of Netflix, how to do this with an animation so that we can tell even better stories than the ones we've all grown up with and have been exposed to. I love that, Aaron, because this morning I was on a TV show and we had a lot of creatives in the room, right? The videographer, the sound guy, etc. And we were talking about whether creatives can exist in a traditional corporate structure and how the benefits are predictable income, etc. Because a lot of creatives, they don't have savings or a pension or, you know, predictable income. And so they could really benefit from being in a corporate environment, but in that way, but it's so anathema to their existence that they mm -hmm. just can't even imagine themselves within a st super structured system like that. So it's so interesting to me that you are trying to bridge that gap for the creatives that you work with at Netflix Animation Studio. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard because we're doing it at a scale that hasn't been attempted before. Yeah. But we're still in the process of figuring this all out. But I think the thing that's really cool about our approach and in, in, in what is typical of Netflix is it's something that we're co-creating. You know, we're working with the community to develop something that works for everybody as opposed to dictating how people should work. And that that approach, I hope, will produce something in the next few years that we can all be proud of. I love that. I love that. So, so Aaron, is this your sole career? Without hesitation, 100%. Like, I, I have a job, you know, not only do I get to work in animation, which, like I said before, my kids think it's a really cool job. Like yeah. my daughter wants to be an artist when she grows up. So what cooler job to have than a father who works in animation? And again, she doesn't really understand that I don't make cartoons, <laughs> but ambiguity aside, from that perspective, I've, I've got a job that my kids care about. But more important than that, you know, within this job, not only do I get to do something very important for the industry, not only do I get to help to reshape how inclusion works in an industry, but I also get to do work completely outside of my day job yeah. um, within the context of Netflix. And a lot of this work that I get to do touches on who I am as an individual is allowing me to do things that I think are socially good and socially impactful. And for that reason, I get to bring so much of myself to work that if this isn't my sole career, I don't think it's possible to have one. <laughs> No, exactly. No, that is the exact definition of a soul career. It's being able to be 100% yourself, 100% human at work and have that be celebrated and required in the role that you're in. 
they don't want you to be anything other than who you really are and bring to the table what you want to bring to the table. So the other thing that you told me in the pre-call actually was that Netflix is a very entrepreneurial environment. So you get to start things and be an entrepreneur within that organization, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the reason that I love the work that I do both in my job description and outside of my job description is because it exists within this greater culture and, and Netflix's culture has been read through, written about, and I think experienced in, in different ways since its publication um, almost two decades ago. And you're right, Lissandra, like the, the entrepreneurial spirit that exists within the culture allows people who have the experience, who have the desire, who have the ideas to come and be very entrepreneurial with the safety of it happening within the walls of a corporation. And so I've gotten experience all of that. And and yeah, like like I said before, if this isn't my sole career, then I don't I don't see it happening. Yeah, you're living the dream, Aaron. You're living the dream. And so because you're living the dream, I think a lot of people who are going to listen to this episode want to know how they can work at Netflix as well. So I have a series of questions for you around that. Actually, when I was recording this morning, I told the guys, oh, I'm going to interview the director of HR at Netflix. And they're like, you know, all of (laughs) they were just like, whoa, 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 what's going on? So first, how does someone based in the U.S. get a job at Netflix? Right. So I'm not going to give like a blanket job search sort of a response to that question. There is a job site. I would never discourage anybody from applying to a job at Netflix, but it's not how I landed my job. So I'll speak specifically to that and what I think is the sort of the bigger advice. I think networking and building a network is critical to anybody's job search strategy. So when I actually got the call for Netflix, I was not looking at Netflix. It was not a target employer for me, not because I didn't want to work for Netflix, not because I didn't admire it. To be honest with you, I didn't think I could ever get a job at Netflix. (laughs) I didn't have an entertainment background. I didn't have a tech background. I'd never lived in Los Angeles, so I didn't even have a network of people. Um, But I was, when I took a job a year before I joined Netflix, I was part of an advisory uh, board for a recruitment technology startup. I joined that board because I wanted to reconnect in with people after living in Singapore for four and a half years. I wanted something that allowed me to get like information on emerging technologies. And I just wanted to refresh and refine my skill set as a, as a recruitment and HR leader. Turns out that a woman from Netflix was also on this advisory board. We got to know each other from a distance for about eight months. And then one day I get a call from her like, hey, I've got an open role on my team. Would you be interested in applying for this role? I've been listening to you on this advisory board for the last eight months now. And I think you have what it takes to be successful here. And I tell that story because I think that the most effective way to search for a job and specifically to get a job at Netflix is to instead of focusing on the job, focus on building up the network. Mm-hmm. Start reaching out to people and LinkedIn is a really good tool for this. Just start building a network of people who are doing the kinds of jobs that you wanna be doing in the departments or in the companies you want to do them. And specifically for Netflix, talk to people who either work here or worked here within the space that you wanna be in. 
And the more you build that network over time, the more those organic opportunities are gonna come your way. And you can do that in parallel to applying for jobs because there are people who get jobs through applications. But there's this really interesting stat that LinkedIn produced, I wanna say a couple of years ago that says, you're 12 times more likely to get a job if you have a relationship with somebody at the company you're looking to work. This is not a Netflix specific statistic. This is LinkedIn looking at, I think 700 million members worth of data and drawing conclusions at, at the largest sort of data sets. And they're doing this continually. So that would be my advice for getting a job at Netflix. Obviously applying works, obviously going to webinars and seminars works, but you're 12 times more likely to get a job a place if you know people. So to not do that would be a huge miss. Absolutely. That is excellent advice and more and more important as we move forward in how talent and recruiting is, is changing with artificial intelligence and automated tracking systems and all of that. Really important to get that referral into the company to put your resume at the top of the pile. But there are a number of, of other nuggets in that story that you told, Aaron. Number one is that you didn't chase, you actually attracted this job. And the way that you did it was by showing up with excellence in the places that you were, right? The tables that you had a seat at, you just showed up with excellence and people hunted for you rather than you hunting for the job. And the other thing is how important it is to to follow up and to and to be to build deposit deposit in the bank of networking before you withdraw something, right? Which is what I like to tell my clients. So great advice there. So does that advice change when it's an international applicant looking for a job with Netflix? I, I don't think so. Um, Netflix has a bunch of offices outside of the US. So we're, we're, we've got offices throughout the Asia Pacific region. We've got offices throughout the Latin America region. Um, we've got offices even outside of the US within the UCAN region, EMEA. So I'd say that that theory still holds. And you know, if there's a place you wanna be building out that network based on geography, obviously increases your chances of meeting the kinds of people who are gonna have access to those opportunities. But the, the, one, the one little thing I'll say about networking and building a network, right? Because I don't view, and it sounds like Lissandra, you don't view networking as a transactional activity right, no. or, or an activity that's, you know, I want this, so I'll do that. Exactly, yeah. Networking should be just something that is part of your everyday. And you should be building out these networks to be, you know, something that you can, make deposits in that you can make withdrawals from, but because it's a friendship, right? These are relationships that you're, you're cultivating, not transactions that you're looking to, you know, benefit from. Exactly, exactly. So I have two more questions about Netflix because we're going to start the show with a bang with Netflix, of course, but then I want to know more about you, Aaron. So first up, how can content creators submit projects to Netflix? So I'm not trying to get a job. I'm trying to get my movie on Netflix. How do I do that? Yep. So I will, I will take some of that advice from the previous question and, and, and go to say, look, the networking stuff that still matters in this space and the more that you can be building networks. And this will be specifically with the creative execs and those 
content creators who you admire, who, who've also been successful in happening that, that, that activity as important here as it was when looking for a job. The additional sort of thing that I add here would just be, if you have an idea, script, screenplay, a production that's already in development, Netflix does not accept unsolicited submissions and there's no secret sauce there, right? There's no backdoor entrance. We, we don't accept unsolicited submissions. However, we do accept submissions through a licensed literary agent, a producer, an attorney, a manager, an entertainment executive. So my, my recommendation would be building the network and building connections with that group of folks across the spectrum and building the relationship with the folks that already have relationships with Netflix. Because once those relationships exist, it's as easy as a phone call to say, hey, we've got a project. And think about the amount of content Netflix is making. We're producing close to a thousand different pieces of content annually. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of relationships. It is a, it is a humongous field. So the more you're developing those relationships and there are books you can buy that will give you lists of agencies, of entertainment lawyers, et cetera. You can go to Barnes and Noble, you can go to Amazon and buy these directories that get produced on an annual basis. Build the list, email the folks, build the relationships. There's no, there's no secret entrance that I found thus far that doesn't require this group of individuals being part of the mix. Yeah. Okay. Phenomenal advice because I did not know that actually, that you had to go through an agent or a lawyer to get in touch with the right people at Netflix. So that's really good to know and very helpful for the people listening to this podcast that want to bombard me with requests to meet you. Aaron, how do I stop that flood of emails into my inbox? Where can I direct them? <laughs> you can direct them to LinkedIn. Um, they can they can follow me on LinkedIn. I will I will I will say like I say to anybody who reaches out, I do not have green light authority. I am not a creative executive. Um, so therefore, like me looking at a pitch or a script or anything does not advance anybody else's needs. <laughs> However, follow me on LinkedIn send me a note on LinkedIn. I do try and respond to folks who reach out to me because I believe in networking and somebody answered my questions when I was looking for answers. Yeah, so yeah. Yes, and I can vouch for that. Aaron does respond on LinkedIn. So please follow him and, re and reach out to him directly, not through me. He's banned me from referring anyone I don't know personally. So... <laughs> Um, okay, so on that note, Aaron, though, you did something really, really amazing at Netflix. So I want to touch on this before we move on. You were the architect of Netflix's pledge to invest 2% of its cash into black communities. So I can't move on from this before until you tell us about that project. Where did the idea come from? Why were you so passionate about it? And where is it now? Right. Um, and thank, thank you for, for giving me the chance to talk about this. It's something that I am super duper proud of, um, both for us as a company and just individually. Um, on June 30th, 2020, Netflix launched an initiative to move 100 million or 2% 2 of our cash into Black banks and financial institutions around the country. I led that initiative, and, and I'll, I'll give you just a brief background. Um, we had started this networking 
uh, idea around sort of bringing executives from underrepresented groups around a table to discuss how we change the complexion and composition of the C-suite. We actually started these dinners, I want to say October 2019. We had a couple of them going. They showed to be very, very effective at allowing our executives to see their blind spots, but more importantly, to see the holes in their networks, right? This, this was an objective to help to close the networking gap that existed between our executives and the executives of color who, for all intents and purposes, are their peers, but isolated from them, right? right. So we got, we got going. This was all moving forward. It was an initiative that was a little bit novel. We hadn't really done anything like it before. And then the pandemic hits and nobody's having dinner in person because the pandemic right so april 16th 2020 i decided to host the first virtual dinner everybody's like well why are we going to do dinner virtually like first of all the pandemic just started we want it to end i'm not going to be eating in front of my camera i'm like no no it's a good idea people want to connect blah 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 right so we have this dinner and on this dinner we end up not talking about how to how to close the networking gap, not how to make corporate America more diverse, but on the dinner was a, was a banker from a black bank called the Harbor Bank in Baltimore. And he's like, look y'all, I'm a little distracted because I'm trying to figure out how to get money to the black communities that are not being served by this PPP uh, initiative because many of the banks, black banks were not well positioned to provide the capital to these communities. Wow. And, and in this conversation, it's like, dang, how do we, how are we going to talk about changing the complexion and composition of the C-suite if we can't even figure out how to get people out of these communities? Because what we're seeing in these communities, and this had been reported, is this pandemic was going to have a disproportionate impact on Black and Brown communities in the U.S. So they were going to get further left behind. Somebody at that dinner says, how do we get corporations to move their money into Black banks to help out banks like, you know, this? And the light bulb went off and I'm like, hmm, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I'm gonna ask the question. I go back to, to Netflix, I ask our CFO, I'm like, hey, Spence, how do we get black banks or how do we get Netflix companies like us to move our money into black banks? He's like, I don't know, but why don't you look into it and let me know what you find? So I started doing the analysis. I read the book, The Color of Money, had a bunch of calls with a bunch of different people. I wrote a proposal, proposal was written, finished on May 25th, or I'm sorry, May 22nd. Finished it on May 22nd, which was a Friday. May 25th, George Floyd is murdered. Oh, that's how the timing went for this, yeah. Right? Because this was not, we did not do, and we didn't launch this initiative as an answer to what happened with George Floyd. Wow. This was, an, this was a, a reaction to a bigger, more endemic issue that we saw happening around the pandemic. But more importantly, we were looking at the racial wealth gap and ways to address that racial wealth gap. George Floyd happens May 25th, May 27th. I had written this proposal, but I had only shared it with one executive. So I sent it to Reed Hastings, our CEO. Reed responds to me in less than an hour, like, let's do this. Wow, um, no. So this is the power of timing, Aaron. <laughs> Absolutely. Like timing had everything to do with this, right? Like if I hadn't had it written, unfortunately, if it hadn't been for the very public nature of George Floyd's murder, 
all of these pieces wouldn't have fallen into place. But being able to send something to our CEO right at the time where I think people were most willing to listen to an action plan then meant that we spent the next, so May 27th to June 30th, less than you know a month and a half, we went from an idea to execution. Wow. And that's essentially how it all happened. And I was involved in every one of these meetings. I set up meetings with several bankers, with different advisors. I actually reached out to Marissa Baradaran, the author of The Color of Money, like, hey, is this even a good idea? What do you think? She agreed to jump on a call with me and became an advisor. I contacted an old mentor, Ray McGuire, who at the time was vice chairman of Citibank. So there was a number of, of conversations and it was like an everyday thing on top of my day job in order to make this happen. And we launched the initiative June 30th. Since we launched, I wanna say at least, you know, over, over a dozen companies across corporate America have made similar commitments. Many of them have routed their money in the same direction we have. We, we set up a fund with local initiative support corporation or LISC. We, we deposited some of the funding with Hope Credit Union. Several, several of our corporate you know, peers have done the same. So over a billion dollars of capital have been made available in these black banks. And, and the conversation is shifting from how do we keep these banks surviving to how do we invest in these communities to help them thrive? So wow. it's like I said, most, most important work I've done thus far, super proud of Netflix for answering the call and just thank you for, for giving me the chance to share a little bit. I, I have not gotten tired of talking about this one yet. Yes, and you told me when we did the call before the show that you are thinking about expanding beyond the U.S., which is very exciting. I can't wait for you to bring it to the Caribbean. I will introduce you to everyone I know to get this done. So if you're, when you're ready, just give me a call and we'll push go on bringing this to the region. <laughs> right, so basically what my takeaway from your story is that luck equals preparation plus timing. So you had seen this opportunity, you were prepared for it, you had built this plan in a very short space of time. And then the timing of the world just shifted to make it happen on this timeline that is just unfathomable. So amazing. Wow, what a roller coaster ride that must have been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was. And one thing I'll say is there were no, there were more no's than yeses on this thing, right? There, there, there were so many roads that we went down where it was like, yeah, this isn't going to work because many of the, in many cases, the banks could not accept deposits. Mm. And that was the, the original idea was like, let's just take this money and deposit in banks. And that wasn't what we ended up doing because that wasn't going to help the banks. Yeah. And the last thing we wanted to do was something that wasn't gonna actually help to solve the problem. Right, wow. I have to ask you this one because this one is important. I know we're gonna go off on a tangent with this one though, but okay. What was the key decision that you took that led you to your sole career? Cause I know the answer is a surprise for this. So yes, go, go, go. <laughs> so yeah. The answer is a surprise. The, what led to my sole career, honestly, was a decision I made 21 years ago. 